This is episode three of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today we are looking at topics that deal with avalanches, using the restroom when you bug out, chickens, and food lessons from the Great Depression. I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Let's get started. Our first article comes from Sheepdog Man. It's a fairly new website. I've been linking to it on Prepper Website. And this article is entitled, How to Survive an Avalanche. In the movie Avalanche, starring Rock Hudson and Mia Farrow, a snow skiing vacation quickly becomes a nightmare struggle to survive after an avalanche smashes into the ski resort, trapping the occupants inside. Unfortunately, the movie isn't great, but the concept is. So, what would you do? If an avalanche came crashing your way, do you know how to survive? According to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, over the last 10 winters, an average of 27 people died in avalanches each winter in the United States. And the most dangerous states? Colorado, Montana, Washington, Wyoming, Utah, Alaska, and Idaho. All my favorite states. Avalanche types. The graphics below, or the graphic below, is from Alan and Mike's book. See bottom of the article for this and other recommended books. There are two main types, a slab on the left and slough release on the right. So just a side note, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of great graphics and uh, videos uh, that you, you're going to want to check out here on, in this article. So you definitely want to visit this article. Um, so when you, uh, and you can link to that from the prepperwebsitepodcast.com. But uh, here, let me continue on. Um, A slab avalanche occurs when a large sheet of snow begins to slide over a wide area. Watch the video below to see an example. A slough avalanche. A slough avalanche occurs when loose surface snow releases at a point and begins to fan out as it descends. And again, like I said, there's videos here. What causes an avalanche and how to assess potential danger? Three things cause an avalanche. Slope, snowpack, and a trigger. Slope. Avalanches usually occur on slopes greater than 35 degrees. Snowpack. Recent avalanches, heavy snowfall, or rain in the past 24 hours, wind-blown snow, significant warming, or rapidly increasing temperatures, and persistent weak layers are all red flags that a dangerous snowpack condition may exist. Learn to recognize these red flags. Additional warning signs of a dangerous snowpack are cracking or collapsing snowpack, whomping sounds, and hollow drum-like sounds on hard snow. A trigger. It doesn't take much to trigger an avalanche. People, new snowfall, and the wind are all common triggers. Measuring the slope. There are three easy ways to measure slope. One is smartphone apps, and there's a smartphone app for an iPhone, the Theolite app, and then for uh, Android, and also iPhone, the Mammoth uh, app, and he has links to those there. Uh, A second way is folding compass with the sighting mirror, 
and Fury makes an excellent compass, and three are ski poles or other straight poles. See all three methods demonstrated in this excellent video. Again, there's another video link there. So how to survive an avalanche. First, always check the U.S. Avalanche ad Advisory at avalanche.org. Click on the Avalanche Centers tab to access more detailed information for your area. Use the guide by Grant Statham et al. via Wikimedia Commons. And again, there's a great graphic here that will give you uh, avalanche information. 25 to 30% of fatalities are due to trauma during the slide, and the survival rate when completely buried is only 30%. That's why the best way to, to survive an avalanche is to watch it from far, far away. However, if you decide to disregard this advice and ride one anyway, here are some tips that might help you stay alive. Get off the slab. Hang on to the downhill side of anything you can grab and angle to get the edge of the slide. Discard skis, poles, or board if applicable. Roll on your back with feet pointing downhill and thrust some part of your body above the surface as the aval avalanche slows and try to make airspace around your mouth. Remain calm if buried and pray that your friends rescue you. Carry a beacon, also called a transceiver. Make sure that each person in your party has a beacon, such as a backcountry access tracker, DTS avalanche beacon. Performing a rescue. Don't go for help. You don't have time. You only have 15 minutes to perform a successful rescue. Carefully watch the victim for a last seen point. Yell for help to alert others in your party or anyone else in the area. Be cautious. Maintain situational awareness and observe the area to make sure it is safe for you to perform a rescue. Look for surface clues such as shoes, poles, skis, or anything else that might help you locate a buried person. Listen. Conduct a beacon search if equipped with a beacon as you should be. Probe around surface clues. Be prepared to administer first aid and possibly spend the night out. Practice rescue before you need it. Equipment to carry in an avalanche country. Essential items. A beacon transceiver. If you plan on engaging in activities that could put you in danger, just get a beacon and hope you never have to use it. A probe. You can use a probe to measure snowpack depth as well as to find a buried person. Sturdy aluminum sports shovel. You're going to need a shovel to dig your friend out. A compass. Again, Fury makes an excellent compass. And Ortovox has an excellent package that includes a beacon, probe, and a shovel. Some optional items is a BCA Float 22 airbag pack. The latest research shows that your chances of surviving an avalanche are twice as good if you're wearing an airbag than if you're not. The Float 22 features enough volume to stash your climbing skin, uh, skins, a hydration pack, snacks, an extra layer, and of course all the avalanche safety essentials. In fact, it has dedicated shovel and probe sleeves so you can quickly access your avalanche rescue tools when the worst happens. Black Diamond Alias Avalon Backpack The Black Diamond Avalon, Avalon is one of the most significant developments in avalanche safety since the avalanche beacon. It should be part of every backcountry traveler's tools. The Rico Unisex Rescue Reflector Many ski resorts are now using the RICO system for added safety. Often the reflector is attached to your ski vest so that search and rescue can find you when you unintentionally go off the cliff. 
Also, there are a number of ski clothing companies that are embedding reflectors in jackets, pants, boots, and helmets. However, it must be understood that the reflector is not a beacon or transceiver. It does not send or receive signals. It is a passive device that enhances the radio signals sent by the RICO detector units used by many search and rescue organizations. Additional resources, and again, he has some, uh, some links to like avalanche.org, fsavalanche.org, and then others, and then some book recommendations. So uh, definitely, you know, I, I'm in Texas, I'm in Houston, um, I'm dealing with pollen. Uh, that, you know, avalanches are not something that, you know, we're dealing with right now, definitely, or, or ever, uh, if I sh- would say that. But those of you that are living in these states that he mentions, you know, Colorado, Montana, Washington, Wyoming, Utah, Alaska, and Idaho, you know, that's something to to consider up there. Um, The weather can change so quickly, and if you're out there and and you're hiking or if you're just caught out there. You know, one other thing that I remember reading from uh, just years ago is uh, when people would get covered up with snow in an avalanche, a lot of the times you're disoriented and you don't know which way uh, is up. And so th- there's been some accounts where people have started digging, but they were digging the wrong way. They were actually digging further down than digging up. And so one thing that I remember reading is if you just let saliva come out of your mouth, and so just kind of because gravity is going to take it. And so if you see it going down, you know which way you need to, to, to you know, to dig. Um, just by, by looking at that saliva coming out of your mouth or letting it drip out of your mouth. The same idea is if you're disoriented, if you, uh, you know, you're underwater and you get disoriented, just blowing a bubble out will allow you, you know, the, the air bubble will go up and will allow you to know which way that you need to head uh, up that way. So just, you know, some good things there. To know and uh, check out this website, Sheepdog Man. Uh, again, I'll have links to it. All right, this next uh, article is um, it's it's kind of a funny one, but if you think about it, it's something important. Uh, we don't always think about it. It's coming to us from ApartmentPrepper.com. It's dealing with the title is dealing with liquid waste while bugging out. So uh, let me go ahead and and get into this one. Um, close to a year ago, while we were focused on building our home preparedness items. I wrote about toilet paper substitutes in this post. These days, we are focusing on bug-out supplies. Houston residents still talk about the nightmarish trips right before Hurricane Rita when people were trying to leave the city all at once. Thousands of people were stuck in traffic for hours as freeways turned into parking lots. Drivers just abandoned their cars by the side of the road. What if you had to leave town in a hurry in the middle of the night and could not stop for a long time? Or what if you are stuck in traffic and sometimes in the car and someone in the car has to make number one? Having gone on road trips with kids, someone will invariably need to go to the bathroom or throw up. That is easily done when rest stops, restaurants, or gas station bathrooms are safe and functional. But in an extreme emergency, they may not be available. So is holding your pee an option? The answer is an emphatic no. Maybe once or twice on a road trip is fine, but not to the point of discomfort or pain. Keeping your bladder full for a long period of time can permanently damage it. You'll also have an increased risk of urinary tract infection, which only makes your situation worse, especially if you're in the midst of a disaster. 
So some ideas for dealing with liquid waste while bugging out. It is possible, if it's possible, you can find a safe and well secluded area by the side of the road where you can go. Women would have to be extra careful while squatting to avoid getting splashed or stung by pests. Men can use a bottle. For women, the Go Girl or a similar portable funnel device plus a container would work. Great care must be taken to avoid spilling. On the plus side, I just got to tell you that reading this article, and it's, it's kind of funny, but if you think about it, you really needed to bug out some things that you know I haven't read before. On the plus side, one of these would come in handy anytime you need to use a public restroom or porta potty and don't wish to sit on the toilet seat. A friend suggested Depends Incontinence Underwear, but I don't think I can bring myself to try this. Another option is the Travel John Disposable Urinal Online. A lot of campers swear by this product for disposing of liquid waste while outdoors or on long trips. I will conduct a test and post the results next time. So, Bernie, we're going to be looking for for those tests on that. Um, you know, this article reminded me of, uh, you know, they, they called it an environmental issue in the past. But um, on the side of the roads where... Uh, people were just throwing bottles of urine out and uh they were they were saying that it was like truck drivers who weren't stopping and they were using bottles and then just kind of tossing it out and it was a an environmental hazard but i i kind of thought about that when uh, i was reading this but something to you know something to consider when you are um you know when you are in a rush and you're bugging out and everyone's kind of you know you want to get to the place that you need to get to so um Check out that link. Uh, Bernie has some links there on the website as well, the article that you can go to and check out. All right, this next uh, article is from uh, Survival Sullivan. And the title of this article is How to Get Your Chickens to Lay More Eggs. I uh, Side note, I believe everybody should have chickens. Um, I live in a suburban area, but we even had a small little chicken coop and had chickens for a little while. Um, got to tell you that, you know, some of the things that even people out there in, in um, rural areas deal with, and I was dealing with as well, had a humongous chicken hawk come and, and sit down on my fence and, and other animals definitely trying to get to my chickens. So anyway, let me go ahead and start uh, start reading this. Does it seem that your egg collection is decreased or that your hens aren't laying as they once did? Or the yolks, yolks are pale and lackluster? lacking the nutrients they should provide. When the chickens are part of a plan for independent living or a structured food supply, this can put a damper on things and thwart being able to rely on them as nutritional resource. It can be a catastrophic event in a survival situation to have your chickens stop producing a crucial food source. Eggs come from happy and healthy chickens, so a few tweaks here and there in your program can improve egg yields immensely. In an emergency situation, it may be already too late to solve the problem. So here are the top tips and tried methods for getting your chickens to lay more eggs for a bountiful future. Remember, they are birds. The first thing to remember is that they are living creatures with their own hierarchy and social order, literally a pecking order. Although they have been domesticated ever since someone discovered how tasty they were, along with their ability to be good little producers of versatile daily nuggets high in protein, the most important thing to keep in mind is that chickens still retain their wild bird instincts. These instincts include foraging, pretending to fly, the desire to roam and scratch for their food, and the mental need to hunt their food. 
If you do not have the luxury of a large area for roaming, you can still build a nice comfortable coop that suits their everyday needs while providing a good diet. Meeting these needs will be rewarded with a nice steady production of quality eggs. Putting the egg first. Before we start adding things that go into the chicken, let's talk about output, the egg. The egg is an amazing little structure. A porous shell offer, offers external protection. This shell mainly consists of calcium carbonate with an invisible barrier made of protein. This protective protein barrier is called the cuticle and it acts as a shield to prevent contamination from bacteria. The nutrient-dense yolk is suspended in a liquid composed of protein and water called the albumin that acts as a shock absorber and cushion. A chicken egg provides 6 to 7 grams of protein and 6 grams of fat, fatty acids, essential amino acids, vitamins, and minerals. To achieve the highest nutritional output in an egg, it's important a laying hen is provided a well-balanced diet that is nutrient-rich with a diverse diet and fresh clean water daily. Top Reasons Chickens Stop Laying Eggs If you have already had your chicken stop producing, don't worry. It's fixable with just a few simple modifications. To understand how to get your chickens to lay more eggs, we need a quick overview of the main reason chickens stop laying eggs. Temperature Having chickens on the ground where it's drafty or damp, or if they are housed in a poorly sealed coop, will affect your egg production as chickens do not fare well in anything but a warm, dry environment. Light. Chickens lay eggs as a means to reproduce. In winter, when a chick has the odds against him for survival, the chicken's body goes into shutdown mode by a way of its endocrine system. System. The endocrine system is signaled to slow production when the daylight hours get shorter. Molt. About once a year, chickens molt and that process can last three to six weeks. Having several ages can help negate any lag, lags in production. Protein needs. When the temperature turns cooler, the chickens need more protein to burn as calories. If the higher calorie needs go goes unmet, the chicken's body produces fewer eggs to save on expenditure. Stress. Being prey to most animals makes a chicken nervous about anything it can't control. Loud noises, excessive noises in its surroundings, or the scent of strange animals can almost guarantee the chickens will stop production. The best ways to get your chickens to lay more eggs, we have, we have covered the basics in chicken husbandry and what things can affect egg production. So now for the good news. A productive flock is as important to hobbyists as well as off-the-grid lifestyles. Some people keep chickens as pets, of course, but for those that are primarily raising a flock for the nutrition-packed eggs, production can be increased with some simple finessing and system tweaks. Here are some of the best ways to get your chickens to lay more eggs or how to get more bang for your cluck. Basic Nutrition No matter how happy or stress-free your hen is, you must provide the basic requirements in, in her feed in order to have your hens lay. Good quality feed supplemented with oyster shells or leftover eggshells needs to be available for her to peck at. Clean water is a must and should be readily available 24 hours a day. This is a nice video in making your, on making your own GMO-free, protein-rich food. And there is, a, just a side note, there is a, a link to a video here or a video uh, embedded in the article that you'll want to check out. So uh, how to feed a balanced diet to a laying hen. Supplements. 
Oyster shell is the most common supplement for chickens, especially laying hens as the calcium provided by the shell is needed to make a healthy and strong egg. Many as we do use a protein, I'm sorry, many as we do use a portion of their leftover eggshells to add to the oyster shells. Without calcium supplements, the laying hen will put it will put it from her bones and it's similar to osteoporosis. Kiss my grits. Good food and quality supplements are only half the battle. You need grit and oyster shell to supply the best possible foods for your chicken so you can get the best quality eggs. When chickens roam free, they consume small pieces of stone and gravel as they forge naturally. This also can happen when they're free range. Chickens in an enclosure need that grit to be supplied to them as it acts as their teeth by grinding food in their gizzard. Without this grit, food cannot be broken down or absorbed properly. No junk food. Much like uh, with humans, low nutritional value food that are high in carbs are a no-no for your chicken. Breads, white pasta, potatoes, dairy, and white rice are not good for your laying hens. Of course, the comfort foods we love are dangerous for your feathered friends. No salty, sweet, or fried foods, and especially no alcohol. Okay, side note, who's going to give their chicken alcohol? That just, I don't, yeah. All right, this is a list of foods that can be toxic for your flock. No spinach, no asparagus, no citrus, no onions, no raw beans that have been dried, no apple seeds, no eggplant, no avocado. Here is a nice video about feeding year-round to prevent a reduction in egg production. Health-conscious chicken treats. There are many things you can feed your chicken to promote more eggs and give them a healthy boost. Oatmeal, cottage cheese, pumpkin, melons, sweet corn, ginger, broccoli, kale, spaghetti squash, cucumbers, all-grain pancakes, and mealworms. Hot tip. Spicy. I had many people tell me that adding some red or green peppers boosted vitamin C and and the chickens loved them. Shed light on the subject. A hen needs 12 to 20, 15 hours. Sorry, a hen needs 12 to 15 hours of light a day to provide the best production numbers in eggs. Installing a light can help keep the production even during winter or on cool nights. Lights infused with red can prevent cannibalism and keep the coop soothed and calm. Most chickens lay their eggs by 10 a.m., so after egg collection, it's time for your hens to go out and get some fresh air and light. Build a proper coop with these tips. There are no uh, one, there's no one specific design that is best for a chicken coop, but there are a few basics to consider when making a coop. Personal space. Allow two to three square feet of space per laying hen, and it is easier to build out later on if your flocks increase in size. Flooring. Dirt is not a deterrent to predators as they can easily dig under the edges. Wood can rot and house parasites. Concrete is expensive and can crack over time. The most current materials used for chicken coop flooring are vinyl over plywood. Plywood can can be easily replaced as needed. Roost. Each hen should have at least 8 inches of roost space. The most common way to use a 2x4 is to use a 2x4 with the wider side facing upward for the roosting bar. This protects those delicate feet in winter from biting cold and frostbite. Make a nest box or make nest boxes a priority. A good way to make egg collecting easy is to use nesting boxes. A nesting box also protects the egg and helps keep it clean. 
One rule of thumb is to have one nesting box for every three to four birds and install them about two feet off the floor. A layer of soft litter like wood shavings or hay can provide cushion for the eggs while absorbing droppings. Coop ventilation. Year-round air ventilation is a must for, health, for a healthy coop. A good measure of thumb is one-fifth of your wall space should be vented. We use hardware cloth to cover the vents to keep off the little varmints and creepy crawlies. Be sure to use washers and screws to secure it down and check it regularly for any rips or holes. Keep a clean coop. No matter what system you employ, the main thing is to provide a nice place to live. Avoid overcrowding your chickens and keep them in a clean and dry environment. A regular schedule of laying fresh litter in the houses and removing droppings will help the hens from tracking feces and dirt into nesting boxes and the eggs within. Hens flourish in hygienic conditions and it is advisable to have a quarantine period for any new stock before they are introduced into the flock. Disinfection. There is a lot of controversy on this. Many swear by bleach, but I do not like it around my animals or eating stock. After some trial and error, I use vinegar to disinfect my chicken coop and lots of elbow grease. I like to disinfect at least every few months by cleaning out everything and then giving it a good hosing. A liberal spray down with vinegar is next and then time drying in the sunlight, which also helps kill bacteria. I soak any bowls or feeding dishes in it, then leave them to dry in the sun also. If you have your chickens on a dirt floor, you may want to use hay over barn lime to keep things dry and hay is dust, and hay is dust free, unlike straw. It does need to be changed every week, but it can be added to the compost. For small flocks, use a tarp. You can lay it out and then cover it in hay. It is easy cleanup as when cleaning time rolls around, just fold the sucker up and drag it to the compost pile. Disinfect with vinegar before adding more hay and rebedding. Rodent Control 101 Rodents can be devastating to a coop and any community they move to. Unfortunately, chicken coops are a magnet for mice and rats. The main time frame is the harvest in fall. It's then that rats will try to invade as their main food supply source is depleted. Colonies of mice will spring up by buildings and they tend to stay inside. The biggest indicator that you have a problem is droppings. A rat has 40 droppings daily versus a mouse's 80. The, con the contaminates feeds and exposes you, your livestock, and your flock to disease, which, it which can include sal salmonellosis, taxophomolysis, cryptophoridiasis, and brucellosis. Man, I know I just messed all those up, but there's a lot of S's in there. So anyway, um, man, yeah, you're going to have to look that up. Sorry, guys. Rodents are also re responsible for more than 25% of all farm fires classified as unknown origin. These nocturnal dwellers can easily be underestimated and can wreak havoc on your flock. They are predators and will seek out chicks. Rat infestation can consume hundreds of chicks a day. The best step to take to eliminate a rodent infestation around your chickens can be summed up in these five methods. Tidy the coop. Deter the vermin by taking away all places they could set up shelter. Brushwood piles or scrap piles should be well away from your coop. Lock the feet up tight. Metal trash cans or drums are the best at deterring the little disease carriers. Make sure the lid locks tight. 
build a wall or barrier. A mouse can squeeze into the opening the size of your little finger, so sheet metal is the best bet to line your coop. Make sure your doors are in good repair with no entry points. Trapping the pest. Physically removing the rats and mice is the best remedy. Place traps around the perimeter. Colony traps that hold many mice at once may be a good option. Rodenticides. A last resort, of course, and rodents, of course, and rodents can become immune, so switching it up is needed. Keep it away from other livestock, and only in extreme circumstances do I use this. But if it's between my flock and the mice, I do what I have to. Thoughts on confinement versus free range. Confinement and free range options for keeping your flock have their advantages and disadvantages. Birds that can free range will have more room and more opportunity to fulfill their needs to be free to forage and hunt. But risks are abundant with threats by disease and predators. Being able to identify and find eggs quickly as well as well eliminate problems in a timely manner is a plus to being in an enclosed environment. Access to the outdoors can help provide a variety in their diet as well as plenty of time to take sunbathing and dust bathing seriously. But to me, it's not worth the risk to have them outside and unprotected 24 hours a day. So we use a chicken tractor in summer and poultry netting in spring. What is a chicken tractor? A chicken tractor is an attachable mobile coop with a trailer hitch that can be moved around so that chickens can have fresh grass and foraging area. It helps spread their fertilizer around the fields as well as keeping bugs down and they have fun exploring their new surroundings. A happy, healthy hen is your most productive hen. This is a great video explaining tips for a great chicken tractor. And here are some free PDF plans if you want to build your own chicken tractor. Exercise. Hens with more belly fat are impeded when it comes to producing eggs. So basic exercise is a must for physiological and mental health. Letting them scratch for their food and give letting them scratch for their food gives them an activity that boosts base metabolic rates and keeps them warm and limber in winter. Throwing the girls leftover veggie table scraps or fresh cut grass and weed straight from the garden will keep them happy little ladies. Cabbage heads or the ends and older lettuce pieces are fun to peck and I use the compost provided as they turn their food into the dirt and manure for my melon and survival gardens. Other ways to boost compost value would be to add corn cobs, carrot greens, melon rinds, kale, corn silks, or any other veggies, leavens you may have. My girls love the after-dinner treats and are lined up at the chicken yard's gate waiting for them every evening. Give them things to do. Nothing is as fun to watch or as sweet as observing hens taking a dirt bath. Chickens like being clean and dirt baths are a way to do this and they promote healthy feathers by whisking away oil, sweat, and parasites. If you do not offer a dirt bath, most flock owners come to find their chickens in the, guard, in the flower garden or in the crops. A few sources claim wood ash is good for a bath or diatomaceous earth, but I believe if I need a mass to be around it, then it will get into my flock's lungs also. I much prefer building my own dirt bath with a simple container that's 24 by 24 inches and at least a foot deep, or dig a hole and fill it. I use sand and dirt. This type of bath promotes sweet-smelling ladies that are lice-free and it's chemical-free so you can't beat that. Stress reduction. Stress is one of the top reasons why chickens stop egg produ production. 
A big stressor is also the cold on the body as well as parasites irritating your chickens. Irritants such as pets, children, and loud music can affect production also. Chickens need a quiet, safe area to relax and claim as their own. When bringing in new chickens, keep in mind that it is a big stressor and production may stop for a few days to weeks as they adjust to their new surroundings. This is normal and soon they will pick back up where they left off when the transition is over. Do you need a rooster to get your chicken to lay more eggs? A rooster adds commotion and not much value to your flock unless you plan on raising hatchlings. For egg production, a rooster can make things worse. Plus, half of your hatchlings will be roosters, so be prepared to find new homes or cull the male chicks. Culling for optimum production. Many people do not like the thought of culling their flock. For optimum production, taking out the older laying hens and replacing them with younger pullets not only keeps the chicken rotation going, but will release the need for the care of the older hens into retirement. It is much more humane to find a loving home if you are attached. In situations where every resource has to not only produce, but be a functional part of a homesteader's life, it is better to butcher the older hens than let feed that can then let feed that can go to younger ones in their prime laying years be wasted on them. Soup stocks and frozen meats can last quite a while. Here is a good video on making chicken stock, something to think on for those older hens not to go to waste. Final thoughts. Life with chickens is a rewarding experience in any homesteader or food self-sufficient life, life stylist program as there are so many ways chickens can help in a garden and around the homestead. Integrating a chicken flock can benefit a homestead with a constant supply of nutritional eggs, quality compost, and meat when needed. Starting a flock is inexpensive and with just a few tips and tricks, you can have those chickens laying more eggs and start to stockpile your bounty. In the old days, every yard had a few chickens pecking around as the eggs were a means of survival. Now it is becoming more and more popular to raise your chickens as the nutritional value and taste of fresh eggs are so much better than anything you can buy in a store. All right, so that's a, it's a very long article at Survival Sullivan there, but a lot of good information on raising chickens. And so, man, if you if you have the room and you're capable, you're able to do this, um, I do recommend it. Uh, to, to raising chickens. Now, um, there are some graphics here, like when we were talking about the egg, there's a, just a neat little graphic that you can take a look at. And again, he's got a lot of videos linked here. So uh, definitely go check that article out. All right, our last article comes from Ask a Prepper. And um, the title of the article is 10 Food Lessons from the Great Depression. All right, here we go. Let's get started. A time racked with suicide and fear, the Great Depression was a holy terror on the nation. Many people exclaimed that the crash of 2008 cost them everything. The truth is that the everything of 2008 was very different than the everything of 1930. Mothers left alone by their husbands to feed children while living in doorways, losing children to disease or hunger and not having a dime to help them, nor a way to procure one. All the terror aside, the emulsification of cultures and despair in America during the Depression created everlasting practices in the management and creation of food, the type of meals that remind you of your grandmother and her dinner table. Many of these meals are still popular today. Many of the methods are used widely as well. The Depression was a time of horror, but it gave way to some incredible innovation in food and food systems. 
In this article, we will learn about 10 of them. Stretch your protein with fillers. One of my favorite meals ever is my mother's stuffed peppers. These peppers were hollowed out and sat upright like cups while bathing in sweet tomato sauce. The filling was always so delicious, but I never understood why the ground beef was studded with white rice. This was a recipe from a time when rice was used to stretch protein. Grains are often used as fillers for proteins. Here is a list of other great options for stretching protein. Grain, corn, rice, and lentil. Grow food. One of the most common sense methods to getting around starvation is to grow food anywhere you can. If people weren't built into cities, they used whatever dirt they could to grow food in. Starvation was one of the most alarming parts about the Great Depression. The growers and farmers' prices dropped by 50% and the surplus of food could not be sold for profit. This is a point that is often missed on our society. We have tons of people who hate the food system, but very few who are making a strong effort to grow their own food. Just a side note, I, uh, I, I hate watering my front yard. I believe that, you know, that's a wasted resource. I know many of you believe that also. Um, and I just, I just wish that um, living in the suburbs, it was just a little bit more accepted to, uh, to plant out, you know, even your front yards. But you know, something you see pictures of the Great Depression and people's front yards, and, and they they were growing, they they were using as much uh, earth as they could to to grow vegetables. So that's something something to always kind of keep in mind. You know, grass is there, grass is nice. You know, if you live in the suburbs, you want the you want the nice yard, but uh, gosh, it's such a waste of resources when I see just people just watering every single day. But anyway, let me continue on. That's my little soapbox. Uh, continue on with raising animals. We fought hard for our ability to raise chickens in the Richmond city limits. It took about a year of badgering the city council, but we pulled it off. Now we have access to fresh eggs every morning. The rules were not as strict during the Depression, and things like ducks, chickens, and even rabbits were raised as food. This is a great lesson from the famine of the Depression that people are just beginning to understand. Preservation. Whether it was the use of salt, smoke, or the removal of oxygen through canning preservation was an incredibly important factor in stretching food through the Great Depression. When you were lucky enough to have meat, it had to be eaten and stretched and preserved with excellence and little to no waste. For many, there was no guarantee of a next time. We must regard our meat with the same respect and appreciation. Drying food, curing it, and smoking it not only work on, work on shelf life, but they also impart great flavor. Okay, just another side note because it's coming to mind. My father-in-law has built, he doesn't live too far away from me. He's built himself a nice little smokehouse in the backyard. Um, he, I mean, he hunts and uh, he smokes his sausage and, and his meat out there. And man, the smell is great. It didn't take a lot of work to get that going and, and, and to build it. Um, he, he really put a lot of time into it because he likes things perfect. But it, it's not, you know, it wasn't too hard to build. And so something, again, to consider. It uh, doesn't take up a lot of space either. So uh, continuing on, buy local. An idea that has taken many people by storm, this push towards buying local was truly the only option during the days of the Depression. There was no other options. This relationship with local farmers and sh 
shopkeepers is so important. If we see another depression similar to that of the 30s, many will be dependent on places like Amazon and Walmart to feed and clothe them. These are retailers, retailers that produce absolutely nothing. You must get to know producers. Use cheaper cups, cuts of meat. To truly appreciate an animal, you must understand how to prepare and use every piece of it. This was not the motivation behind those suffering during the Great Depression. Still, it was the, on, it was the only undesirable cuts of meat that could be afforded by most people. So, it became a matter of life and death for them to learn how to make these cuts edible. I would recommend exploring the following cuts of various animals as viable and delicious food options. Tongues, liver, shin, shank, brains, and tails. And he has in uh, uh, parentheses pig and ox. So yeah, that's kind of hard for me to take right there, but um, the options are options are there for you. Hunting. Hunting was a serious endeavor in the age of the Depression. For many, it was hunting and put that put food on the table. This increase of demand on wild game affected the numbers in a big way. The hunting of these animals made them scarce for many years in some areas. The use of wild, wildlife management has since brought many populations back. With 300 million people in the nation, hunting will only work early on. The game would all be taken very quickly. Still, it doesn't take many animals to feed a family for a year, so getting a deer or two early on would certainly be a worthwhile endeavor. Again, going back up to raising rabbits, um, you've heard the statistics. Um, you know, breeding a two does and a buck optimally can give you uh, more meat in a year than uh, than raising a cow, and it's, it's so much cheaper. I mean, that's a st- statistic there that I've read before. But anyway, that's definitely a viable option. Um, continuing on, I, I know I'm stopping a lot, guys. Just things keep coming up into my to my mind as I'm reading. Uh, pinch pennies for food. The idea of reusing and preserving material items like clothes, shoes, and items around the house is so foreign in this throwaway society. Of course, any money saved on material items could be put towards heating and feeding the family. These would have taken precedence over a new dress or new shoes. It wasn't uncommon for a young boy to have one pair of shoes and one pair of pants that were cut-offs of an older dead man's pants. It was sheer necessity that we could use the ideas to reuse or repair to improve our own finances and lives. How you cook your food. Though it may seem simple, the challenges of keeping warm and keeping hot food on the table made fuel a definite concern for many who were struggling in the Depression. These struggles were greater in the compacted cities across the nation. Coal was used as well, but it all came at a cost. We could learn the importance of a cord of wood from our great-grandparents. You should invest in a diverse array of methods for heating your home and cooking. This could include wood stoves, pellet stoves, and electric generators. Teach the next generation. Easily the most important lessons learned was the how to transfer knowledge. These lessons sometimes span several generations. The recipes, the traditions, the superstitions, and the knowledge that kept them alive through such a terrible time still exist today. Though the marks are fading from our society, you still get a whiff of them from time to time, just as they thought it their duty to transfer these lessons and this knowledge to the next generation, so too will it be yours. You must be prepared to cut through the shrouds of technology and capture the interest of the young and old who will carry this knowledge forward. 
All right, so good article with some things to think about. Um, I, I truly believe that as the economy right now, uh, as, as I'm producing this, this, po- this podcast, things are good right now, um, relatively good. But uh, if the economy starts to tank and starts to spiral down, I think you're going to see more and more people looking for information about the Great Depression, looking for information on how to make food, um, you know, how to, how to make it go farther, how to save money. I think that's going to be a big, big deal in our near future. So, um, you know, if you find articles on that or you find old books, you know, something to uh, something to think about. And then also, if you have older family members, I mean, the older, older family members who know some of these tips and tricks and things, definitely want to spend a little bit of time getting to, you know, talking with them and, and visiting with them and asking them about, you know, their experiences you know, when um, they had to cut cost and and had to save and had to make things stretch that's always such a such a benefit to visit with uh the older generation so all right well that's that's it for this episode uh before i go if i can ask you for a huge favor you can be very instrumental in getting the word out about this podcast by reviewing it on itunes or stitcher and we're on a bunch of other different uh podcast networks um, to make it easy for you, I do have links to iTunes and, and uh, Stitcher on my uh, homepage of the Prepper website, podcast.com. So also feel, feel free to share this, uh, our links out uh, through social media and definitely through word of mouth. And don't forget to drop by the Prepper website, podcast.com. And uh, you can also hit us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So we'll be back tomorrow for another great for more great articles to share. And don't forget that there's also a ton of great articles on PrepperWebsite.com um, that you can read. We update that every single day. All right, so until next time, stay prepped and aware. Peace.